If you want to join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, we'll be all set for our study together of God's Word and learning about the good news of Jesus Christ according to Luke and His record. My opening question uh, has to do with Jesus and to get us thinking, and my question uh, would be twofold, and that is, can He and will He? Can He and will He? Kind of sounds silly. Can He, will He? What I'm getting at is, can Jesus help you? In other words, does He have the ability, does He have the power to help you, to bring redemption, to bring uh, freedom, to bring deliverance? Does He have the ability, does He have the power? It's an important question when you're talking about redeemers, when you're talking about deliverers. Do they, whether we're talking about Jesus or some other deliverer, do they have the means, do they have the power can he? It's also just as important to say, will he? Will he deliver me? Is he willing? Is he kind and personal and compassionate enough to help me? Both are crucial. And, and sometimes, again, whether we're talking about Jesus or something or someone else, we might have one without the other or the other without the one. It's one thing to have a great and powerful deity that you believe in, but if he's impersonal, no deliverance, no freedom, no redemption. Or to have a personal deliverer who lacks the power is just as problematic. It's just as problematic. More than likely, you're coming from, from one of those kinds of imbalances. All of us at one level or another, at some time in our life or another, we're, we're perhaps thinking about this great and powerful and awesome God who isn't personal and doesn't care. That's a problem. You can have all the power in the world, but if the power isn't there to help you, you're sunk. Right now, as a culture, we don't tend to have that problem. We, we tend to commit the opposite problem, and, and we think Jesus is nice, and Jesus is willing, but Jesus is that woman with a beard and a dress who weighs 75 pounds who couldn't help anybody, but he would really like to. The great thing about the gospel accounts is they give us clear perspective. You know, will the real true Jesus please stand up? And Luke says, let me tell you who the real true Jesus is. He's powerful and he's personal. He can and he will. And so it's great. We can, we can just cash in. We, we can trade in all of our idols, some of them labeled named Jesus, for the real thing. And it's so helpful to have to, a clear perspective on this. It's what you need. It's what I need. Power and mighty to save and, and willing and compassionate and he actually cares about people like you and like me. If you just look at Luke chapter 1, just by way of review and reminder, what Luke's setting out to do. Dr. Luke, he was a physician in the first century, prone to detail, prone to giving all of the information and then some, uh, writing good history in that regard. And he says in the opening four verses of this account, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
I'm using great self-control to not elaborate. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants or ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So helpful to remember what he's doing. Let me give you the details. I'm not the only one doing this. I am not the first person to do this. But let me give you the details so that you can know Theophilus. Oh, by the way, most excellent, educated, wasn't born yesterday, Theophilus. Who the real Jesus is. So that you can have certainty about trusting in him and not in someone or something else. This morning we're going to look at two historic accounts. Luke chapter 7, first 17 verses gives us two historic accounts of Jesus powerfully helping people. So he's mighty and he cares and we're going to see both wonderfully before our eyes this morning in chapter 7 verses 1 to 17. The first account where we see his power and his willingness is where Jesus helps a helpless Gentile. He helps a helpless Gentile. That's important because most of us in the room are Gentiles. Okay? And if you're new to the Bible or just need a reminder, there are Jews, God's unique chosen people from among all the nations of the earth. He chooses the Jewish people, not because they're mighty strong, uh, because they're actually small and weak, and he's going to show his power. He chooses them. He makes them his nation, and you have them as the people of God, and then you have everybody else. Jews and Gentiles would make up the whole world. Theophilus is a Gentile, and I'm just giving you the preview now. That's pretty important because Jesus is the Jew. And he's going to set the tone even for his whole ministry. And then we look forward to Great Commission, all nations, not just Jews. He's not paying attention to one kind of person. Here he's going to help a Gentile. Excited? I hope you are. I'm excited. Let's go. Let's see him showing power and compassion. Verse 1 says, After he had finished all his sayings, those Sermon on the Mount sayings, we might refer to them as, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Apparently he's outside of Capernaum. He is outside of Capernaum. A Sea of Galilee region. Okay, you've got all these towns and cities around the Sea of Galilee, 13 miles by 7 miles, roughly speaking, uh, with mountainous kinds of ridges around the outsides. And Capernaum is on, in the north. He's been outside of Capernaum doing the Sermon on the Mount, preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And now he goes into the city of Capernaum, still in the north, still Sea of Galilee. And he goes in and verse 2 says, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And that is one of those things where, where we read it and we go, you know, where's the Bible relevant to me? Well, <laughs> it's relevant when it says centurion. It's relevant because a centurion is not a Jew. Centurions were, at this point in time, were made up of different kinds of people, different races. A centurion is, is, a, is a big gun. Uh, without a gun. A, a centurion is a, is a major player. He has, he has a hundred men under his charge. Typical soldier got like 75 denarii. 
whatever that means. Let's just say $75 because it makes it easy for us, but it's not the same. He, he makes 75 something. That's his salary. A centurion, we're talking more like 5,000, 7,000. He, he's wealthy. He's powerful. He's wealthy. 100 men under his charge. But make sure you pay attention to the fact that he's no Jew. And what's Jesus going to have to do with someone who's not a Jew? This centurion, according to verse 2, has, has a servant who's valuable to him, who he cares about, who is at, at, at death's door. And this powerful man now has no power, as is the case with powerful people. Eventually, they don't have the power to do what they want to do. Look at verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews. He wouldn't have sent priests and scribes. He'd send civil leaders. Leaders, nevertheless. He sends them to Jesus. Look what it says. Asking him to come and heal his servant. Verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He, that is the centurion. He, the centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, the, the nation of Israel. And, and he is the one who built our synagogue. Please, Jesus, help the centurion. Let us motivate you. Yes, we've been sent by the centurion, but let us motivate you. He's a fan. (laughs) He's not antagonistic to us as Jewish people. In fact, this man of power and means, he built our synagogue. This doesn't mean he's a Jewish proselyte, convert to Judaism. It doesn't mean that at all. I mean, it could be that, but, but that would be reading too much into it. It wasn't, wouldn't be uncommon, just as it wouldn't be uncommon today, to have a soldier stationed in another country to develop an affection for the people, to even develop an, uh, an appreciation for the people and for their customs and the things that they do. Not only that, we also know from history that certain Roman rulers saw great benefit in even though they totally rejected it themselves in Judaism as far as, well, if we're going to control these people, we're going to let them have their religion. Uh, It's a way to keep control. It's a way to kind of keep them happy. It's a way to maintain some kind of morality, even if it's not the kind we like. The centurion has helped the Jewish people. Don't know motives. But you see what's happening. The Jewish leaders, the civil leaders are saying, Jesus, you should do what he's asking. It's in our interest. This is a good idea. I do also want you to notice what it said back there in verse 3. This may become important if my memory is good enough today to talk about it, but I'll talk about it now just in case. The centurion heard about Jesus. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. But for now, let me just point out the fact that it doesn't say that he saw Jesus. He knew what Jesus had done. There's, there, there's real news being spoken of Jesus. It wasn't like in a back alley somewhere and there are no real witnesses or shady witnesses. Jesus by now has a reputation for doing supernatural things. Objectifiable, measurable, undeniable. And he's done it enough times, he, he's a force to be reckoned with. And to the point where this guy who has not seen Jesus has enough confidence in Jesus to know that he can help him. Because he's helpless. That becomes important, I think, even in what Luke is trying to do because he's writing to Theophilus who hadn't seen Jesus. And by the way, you haven't either. It becomes helpful to people like us. 
So here's this man of means needing help from Jesus. So he calls for help. Verse 6 says, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Isn't it interesting that in verse 4, they say he's worthy. And now it says, he's saying, I'm not worthy. To have you come under my roof. Verse 7 is an important verse. Therefore I will not presume to come to you. I did not presume to come to you. But say the word. I underline that because it's so significant. But say the word and let my servant be healed. That's cool. I know based upon your reputation. I know based upon the news. I know based upon what you've been doing. Objectively, verifiably, not just some feeling somebody had and a warmth coming over them. I know based upon what you've been doing, you can help me. And all you have to do to help me is say it. That's cool. Supernatural power. You can do it. You, you, you can help me. That's all that needs to happen. And it gets even cooler, I think. Verse 8. For I too am a man under authority. With soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. How about that? He, he totally understands authority. He totally understands power. He's got a hundred men under him. Oh, and the, and the Roman government is over him and behind him. So when he gives an order, he's got the Roman government backing him and he's also under obligation to them. He totally gets how this kind of thing works. He gets power and authority and how orders work. He's very reasonable and he says, Jesus, all you have to do is do like I do. That's all you have to do. I know enough about you to know that all you have to do is do what I do. And if you just say it, it'll happen. It'll happen. One person put it this way. When the centurion gave an order, it was backed by the entire Roman Empire. A soldier of the world's most significant army compliments Jesus' authority and equates it to the authority of a military unit. Great power, in other words. Reasonableness is a beautiful thing. <laughs> this guy's reasonable. He gets an A in logic. When I tell people to do things, they do it because I have power. And we're talking about someone here who has power. All you have to do is say it and it will be done. And verse 9 says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. One other time that word is used, the original Greek word is used for marveled. It's in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, where Jesus marveled at the unbelief of his own people. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith.
the centurion should stand out to you and stand out to me as a man of great reason. As a man of great reasonableness. And his reasonableness necessarily led him to believe in Jesus. Please think about that. Think about that because when we hear believe in Jesus, oh, belief is the part you have to um, uh, put in where things are irrational. Where there are no facts and things don't make any sense, just have faith. That's how we typically think and talk of faith in the marketplace and the marketplace of ideas. This centurion is anything but that. Here is Jesus who supernaturally, objectively, helps people in ways that no one can help them. And Dr. Luke is writing this going, yeah, no kidding, I'm a doctor. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus heals people in ways that can't be done apart from some supernatural act. And Jesus has been doing it again and again and again and again. So what's reasonable? What's rational? What's logical? To not believe in him? That would be utterly irrational. What would be rational is to say, I'm trusting in him. See how important this is? It's it's crucial that we we understand what we mean by faith in Christianity. Faith is not making up for the parts that don't make sense. Faith is trusting in the one who does make sense and who has the, the proven and shown power. That's how Christians should be talking about faith. It's totally different. There's a book titled, Faith is Not Wishing. It's a good book title. I haven't read it, but I love the title. Faith is Not Wishing. Well, I know this isn't true, but I wish for it to be true. That's faith. No, it isn't. Faith is confiding in, having confidence in something. The centurion is confiding in Christ because he's shown to be powerful and willing. I love it. I want you to love it. I want you to not just love it. I want you to love him. (laughs) Say, that's right. I trust him. I trust him. I had to try to sort this out even further. Here here are four sentences. You don't need to try to write them down, but just think through this in simple terms. If you went to public school like me, you might like this. You might not like it. I don't know, but here goes. Belief in the incredible is irrational. Belief in the incredible is irrational. Next. Belief in the credible is rational. Belief in the credible is rational. Next sentence. Unbelief in the credible is irrational. Next sentence. Unbelief in the incredible is rational. There'll be a test before you leave. Um, (laughs) It would be absolutely, totally illogical, irrational if the centurion didn't believe in Christ. Because Christ is proven to have the power to do this very thing. I'm writing to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might have certainty. 
We're not writing about phantoms. We're not writing about funny feelings and burnings in bosoms, as one religion likes to say. We're writing about historical actions that show Jesus is uniquely powerful to do what can't otherwise be done, and he is willing to do it. Trust him, Theophilus. is what he's getting at. So when it comes to Jesus, it's utterly and completely irrational to not believe, is what I would want to go on record as saying. Faith is not that which makes up for lack of credibility. Our faith is in the credible one. Let's keep moving. Couldn't pass up that opportunity to talk about that, though. Number 10. Or number 10. I woke up at 2.30 this morning. I wish, I wish church would have started then. I was ready to go, and I'm ready to go to bed for tonight. The mind is a terrible thing, um, sometimes. Let's go to verse 10 now. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Surprise, surprise. Not if you're a centurion. Centurion would have been happy. But not for a second would he have thought, oh my, I can't believe it. I'm so surprised. Not for a second was he surprised. All you have to do is say the word, Jesus. I know about what you have done on planet Earth, in time and space, verifiably. I praise you, but you don't surprise me. It's helpful. It's cool. It's encouraging. He's authoritative and he's compassionate enough to help. Just a few observations and applications about this before we move on. We've already talked about the all nations anticipation here, but I just want to underscore it one more time. You know, we don't have all the details in every event but but we know the greater story and we know where things are going and and this is a, a great little uh, example from jesus that he's the savior of the world he's not just the savior of the jews jew and gentile this makes sense it makes sense later on when he says to the disciples who are supposed to tell us Go and make disciples of all ethnos. Go and make disciples of all nations, all different kinds of peoples. Christianity isn't for the Jews only. It's not a Jewish religion, even though its founder was Jewish. It's for everybody, every different kind of person. We don't even know what race this guy was. He's a Gentile, though, which would include everybody other than Jews. And so we see where where this is projecting forward even to where we are. Jesus is the Savior. And that makes sense, not just theoretical, theoretically from the Apostle Paul. It makes sense from Jesus' ministry himself. Also notice something about this centurion. You know, Jesus is um, pretty, pretty emphatic about commenting on his faith. He's not even a Jew and he believes. And that's contrasted with the Jews didn't believe. How mixed up and 
confusing could this be? But please do me a favor and don't be too in awe of the centurion. The Jews are in awe of the centurion. The centurion is in awe of Jesus. Let's learn that from the centurion. I read all these commentaries this week, otherwise good commentaries, and it's all about this great man of faith. I think if the centurion were standing here right now, he'd say, why don't you read that again? I'm in awe of Jesus who speaks and doesn't have a hundred men doing what they want him to do. I'm the one who's in awe of Jesus who speaks and he does what could never be done by a bazillion human beings. He's trusting in Jesus. Faith here for this man is not virtuous in and of itself. Faith is nothing. Faith is trusting in the one who is virtuous. It's faith in Christ. We need to remember that. Let's move on now to, to a second historical account that's like this one. Verses 11 to 17, Jesus helps a helpless woman in a helpless situation, I might add. Verse 11 says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Verse 12, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a woman who had Excuse me, behold, a man who had died was carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Someone said it's an orphan parent, kind of interesting. She was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Funeral procession, orphaned parent. That would be bad. It's even worse because if she doesn't have a husband and she doesn't have a one and only son, she doesn't have means in that culture, more than likely. And apart from her community surrounding her and helping her, she's in a world of hurt, so she would be hurting anyway. But she's even hurting more than we might imagine in 21st century America. This is a hard one for us to feel. This is a hard for one for us, but we can at least imagine and imagine what it's like. Jesus shows up, he walks in, and there's a funeral procession, probably at the end of the day, as would be customary, and there's the weeping, and there's the wailing, and here's this woman who has her source, uh, her son, as well as source of means, who's dead. She needs power, and she needs compassion, is what she needs. She's hurting. don't want to take away from the historical account. We'll get back to it in a second. But lest we just keep reading, let, let's just think about grief. And, and let's think about need for compassion, need for help, awful feelings. Everyone in this room, to one degree or another, has experienced some kind of grief or is experiencing it. Some of you, something more like this, because you've lost children, Robert Dabney, famous pastor, after he lost his first son as a little boy, wrote a letter to his brother. And just to feel maybe this a little bit better than we might feel, um, this kind of helped me. Here's the letter. We used prompt measures and sent early for the doctor who did not think his case was dangerous 
but he grew gradually worse until Sunday when his symptoms became alarming and he passed away after great sufferings Monday. He was intelligent to the end, even after he became speechless. And his appealing looks to us and the physician would have melted a stone. A half hour before he died, he sank into a sleep, which became more and more quiet until he gently sighed his soul away. This is the first death we have had in our family and my first experience of any great sorrow. I've learned rapidly in the school of anguish this week and am many years older than I was a few days ago. It was not so much that I could not give my darling up, but that I saw him suffer such pangs and then fall under the grasp of the cruel destroyer while I was impotent for his help. Ah, when the mighty wings of the angel of death nestle over your heart's treasures and his black shadow broods over your home, it shakes the heart with a shuddering terror and a horror of great darkness. To see my dear little one ravaged, crushed and destroyed, turning his beautiful liquid eyes to me and his weeping mother for help, after his gentle voice could no longer be heard, and to feel myself as helpless to give any aid, this tears my heart with anguish. And I think two weeks later, the little boy's brother died of the same thing. That at least helped me a little bit to, to feel a sense of a mother who's lost her child is feeling and, and she needs power and she needs willingness. So we come back to our narrative. Back to verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her. That was the other thing I had to underline in our, our study today. He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Odd, cruel, tasteless. Oh no, not based upon who Jesus is. Keep going. Verse 14. Then he, then he came up and touched the, the, the buyer. That is the frame that would be carrying the body. And the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. From what I have read, every other time this particular word is used of Jesus approaching in the gospel accounts, it's always associated with him approaching so he can show power. So I, I like it that we're seeing both in the same passage. It says compassion. And without saying it, it's saying power, if that's how the pattern is. When he approaches like this, and it's emphasized as Luke and the other gospel writers emphasize it, when he approaches, it's to show something, and it's to show power. And he's showing his compassion as well, because it says so. He's going to help. Arise, he says. And then it says in verse 15, And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus 
gave him to his mother. I give you your son, in other words. I present to you your son, not the corpse. They, they would carry them on, on, on sticks or a wooden platform. They wouldn't put them in boxes at this point in time. They would, uh, typically, they would wrap them in cloth. So here he is wrapped. And he says, Awake, rise. And he does. And he says, I, Here's your son. Here he is. I care. And I can. It's awesome. give you your mother or I give you your your son but it's even more interesting when it comes to understanding who Jesus is the original wording from verse 15 is the exact same wording of the Greek version of 1 Kings chapter 17 where we have Elijah raising the dead there's a purposeful parallel. They're not exactly the same, but there's a purposeful parallel that God is working here. See, the Jewish people, had, they, they weren't like modern day charismatics today where God is always doing these miraculous things. Never mind what happens on the buses afterward that they don't show you on TV. The, the, the Jewish people didn't think that way because that's not how the Bible explains it. There are unique, extraordinary times, punctuated times in history where God does unique, extraordinary things. He's always great. He's always gracious. But there are those, those flashpoints where there's something new and extraordinary, new revelation or whatever it might be, like with Elijah and Elisha. And here, on purpose, the dots are connected. Jesus is like them. Same wording used. Now, we know that He's like them. He needs to be like them. He's better than they are, but make no mistake about it, He's like them. It makes my mind travel back to Hebrews chapter 1, where, we, where we're reminded that God is a speaking God, and He's revealed Himself in so many different ways through, like the prophets, I'm paraphrasing here. But, it says in chapter 1, in these last days, in these climactic days, in these fulfillment kind of days, in these punctuated days, in these extraordinary days, did I say that already? I don't know. But in, in, these, in these amazing, unique days, He's spoken to us through His Son, who is not less than a prophet, but He's more than a prophet. And so there's a connection made here, and there should be a connection made here. It's like 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings chapter 4, Elijah, Elisha. And this helps us to understand why it's going to say what it says in verse 16. Keep reading. Fear sees them all. This is God working like he has before. Different, but like. Like he has before. He sees them all. It sees them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen, arisen among us. And God has visited his people. Now, you know more than they do, and you kind of want to throw rocks at them and say, he's not just a prophet. Don't do that. They're actually, based upon what they know at the time, they're, they're on the right path. We know more, but they're on the right path. They're putting their finger on it, saying, God is doing what he's done before. All things aren't the same. We've seen this before. Maybe we haven't seen it with our own eyes, but we've heard about this before. When we've learned about our nation's history, it's like Elijah. It's like Elisha. New prophet has come. Extraordinary. 
Don't throw those guys under the bus for that. He's going to be the greater one. Yeah. They're on to something. They really are. There's a lot more to be ironed out. and We know more, but they're on to something. In Luke chapter 19, verse 44, it'll say that Israel missed the visitation. By and large is the idea. God is visiting us in a new way, like he has before. Verse 17 says, And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Again, not back alley kind of stuff. Put the word out about what he does and who he is which is going to raise questions. And the questions are sometimes enough to make us uncomfortable, but they're actually good questions that get asked because then they can get answered. And so next time with John the Baptist, you've got questions that arise and in, 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 in who this Jesus is. And they need to get answered. And so we want to welcome them because it will help us to understand Jesus and who he is even better. Willing and able, therefore worthy of trust today. Willing and able, worthy of trust, even today. And think, if you will, about Theophilus again, who didn't see Jesus. Oh, Theophilus, let me tell you many historic accounts, but let me make sure I tell you a historic account about someone who never saw Jesus, just like you. But he trusted him, he was powerful and able. Let me tell you about another occasion where they didn't come asking. Jesus went looking to show his power. I want to end with a couple of questions that are related to this that help us to put things in a bigger picture perspective. Sort of said it before, but I'll have to keep saying it. Did Jesus cure all sick people? Did he raise all dead people? No. Just remember that. Because that will lead you to ask another question, then why did he do this? It'll help you to read your Bible responsibly. It's meant to be read responsibly. Luke is giving an orderly account so that we could make sense and not have it all be alphabet soup. Jesus didn't heal everyone. I guess I should add a little footnote. He did heal everyone who would come to him for healing. It wasn't like they, he, he sent them away and said, I've got to catch my Learjet. Sorry you didn't have enough faith. Um, that's modern day shenanigans. Jesus did heal the people who came to him. He didn't say, you don't have enough faith. Leave. Sorry you threw your wheelchair away on TV, but you're smoked now. I mean, I, I'm being crass about it because it's awful. When people came to Jesus, he helped them. And he didn't send them away putting the blame on them. But that aside, that footnote aside, Jesus didn't heal everybody. Jesus didn't raise everybody from the dead. Oh, oh, by the way, that just makes me think of another question. Did these two people end up dying? Sure they did. It wasn't a lasting resurrection for this dead young man. We have every reason to believe that he eventually died. Where I'm going with all of this is to remind you that much more needs to be done. Jesus is headed to Calvary and he's going there to pay for our 
rebellion. He's going there to atone for our sins. He has to go there. And he's going to go there. And he does go there. And then he is raised from the dead. And then everyone who's united to him by faith, having their sins atoned for, is united with him not only in his death, but also in his resurrection, so as to then never die again when they are resurrected on the last day. And you say, what's the big idea? What's, what's, what's the big point here? To see that what Jesus does before Calvary and before the empty tomb is gives us, gives us a, a taste. Uh, maybe that's an understatement. He gives us a, a dramatic and, and powerful and real preview of coming attractions. Uh, in other words, he shows that he actually has the power to do it and he's trustworthy, that he really is from God, that he really is the God-man. He really is powerful and able. But all of this is going somewhere and it's going to him climactically, amazingly, ultimately making perfect atonement, rising again from the dead. And then, as the Bible says so wonderfully, he's the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism, a nice way of saying dead people, but it's used of believers because it's temporary. So when you read your Bibles, read it responsibly. Jesus didn't go around going, I'm just going to look for funerals. You know, wherever I see the little car with the things on top, it's not really a police car, but the guy's acting like a police. I'll just stop and fix it. No. No. Uniquely, at times, as he saw fit, he demonstrates his power. Uniquely, verifiably, but undeniably, he demonstrates his power as a preview, as a taste to show you and me what he was going to do, specifically them then and there. And we know the full story. So as you read your Bible, just know that it's heading somewhere. It's heading to the cross. It's heading to the empty tomb. It's heading to help us trust Him. It's heading to help us trust Him. And we know so much more than He does. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning and for our day You've given to us. We take so much for granted and we act so independent and so self-sufficient. and Each of us knows that, that we need your help and that we are broken people living broken lives. And we, we, we need a, a Savior who raises the dead. And we need a Savior who will one day bring perfect healing, so much so that it's already a guarantee because He's been raised from the dead. So remind us afresh, remind us anew, May we leave here today as men and women and boys and girls who are, are trusting in a Savior who is powerful as well as willing. In Jesus' name.